Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. Today we're going to be reading Chapter 7 of Reincarnation, The Pre-Mortal World. This is going to be a short chapter. After I'm done reading this, I'll talk about my work schedule and the new job that I started, but let's get into the reading first. The Pre-Mortal World, Chapter 7 of Reincarnation, pages 62 to 67. For a wise and glorious purpose, thou hast placed me here on earth, and withheld the recollection of my former friends and birth. Yet oftentimes a secret something whispered, you're a stranger here and I felt that I had wandered from a more exalted sphere, Eliza R. Snow. Upon first reading that, I noticed that she talks about her former friends and birth. I find that interesting. That's uh, Eliza R. Snow's uh, hymn, Oh My Father, verse 2. There is an inequality among mortals on earth that is difficult to explain or understand. Why does a just and fair God send spirits to earth in such different and unequal bodies and circumstances? Some people are born rich, others are poor. Some are born healthy, while others are sickly. Some are more intelligent or talented than others. Some come into beautiful, lush surroundings, while others begin their lives in hot, barren deserts or cold polar regions. Even the modern Christian religions have trouble explaining such apparent unfairness. Irving Cooper, a noted Christian author, wrote, We are unequal physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually, while opportunity and limitations seem always to be playing a fair a game of of tag with our plans or on page 63 if you're reading along uh, if you are reading along in the description of this podcast there will be a link where you can go and read along with me uh, there will also be a description or a, a link in the description for the reading of this book the whole book online and also a link in the description for reading other books on the restoration but we're on page 63 of reincarnation continuing some men have strong and healthy bodies others are frail and diseased some have grace and physical refinement others are gross and coarsely grained Some have quick and capacious brains. Others are dull and limited in in thought 
think too how completely our standing in the world is affected by what we are physically. Equality. Equality is denied by every fact in nature. In one of our large cities, for many years, there was to be seen a little crippled seat at the street corner on a piece of carpet. Okay, so there was a little cripple, like a somebody who had some uh, deformities. He was certainly over 40 years of age, but he had the the body had a body the size of a boy of 10 and his arms and legs were twisted and distorted that it was unpleasant even to look at him for years he had kept himself alive by selling pencils and papers and the limits of his intellectual universe were bounded by the street crossing at which he sat Contrast the limitations of his life, the physical suffering, the dim yearning for friendship, the colorless days, the narrow horizons with the many opportunities and friends which have come to us. If we believe there is a divine power, then what? Then that power is responsible for this man's destiny, either by directly either directly by placing a soul without stain in this crippled body or indirectly by creating a world in which such tragedies can take place. Why are there so many terrible inequalities in the environment? End quote, and that's a book called Reincarnation by Cooper, pages 7 and 8. What has occurred to bring these differences about? The most logical explanation is that the mental, moral, and physical parts of our character are are results of our thoughts, desires, and actions in a pre-mortal world. Hence, our life is not the result of some accidental mix-up, nor can we blame God for the conditions of our mortal birth. Rather, it is the accumulated result of our own actions previous to coming to this earth. I would say it's also a choice that we made. So when God showed me how we can put off our resurrection at the end of an earth cycle and go on in the new earth that John sees in the book of Revelations, um, he taught me that we put off our resurrection Uh, Because, first of all, we're damned in that state of resurrection and we cannot progress unless we put off that resurrection and go on to a new earth. But we have to go through many different types of experiences in in mortality, whether it's on this earth or another earth, it doesn't matter. As we go through the experiences that we choose to go through, we gain more experience and we gain a a higher level of resurrection. And this is what is meant by eternal lives. It's so that we can gain higher resurrection. It's so that we can progress to become exalted beings, if we choose. This isn't something that's forced on us. There's a lot of choice. There's a lot of... um, connection to certain family groups as well 
And like I said in one of my previous podcasts, my son who died, I was mourning over him and I was asking God how it was possible that like I couldn't heal him when I've I've healed others that were on the brink of death. Like I said amen and they were healed in an instant, but then there's other people that I've blessed and there haven't there hasn't been healings, but with my son and my daughter that died, I couldn't I couldn't do anything about it. And I was just like, why is it that I have the ability to, like, bring somebody back from the brink of death one time where I say amen and they're healed in an instant and they start breathing again and the disease that was in her lungs was completely healed by the time they got to the hospital. But I can't save my own son. And I was told that that my son wanted to stay with our family group, but he needed a break from being in mortality, of going through a full life. And he made the decision to be born to my wife and I, but not to remain in mortality. And I know he's still here. Um, I saw him standing in my front room the other day. And my my son's babysitter's son <laughs> was walking past the room about a year ago. Maybe it's been a little bit longer than a year ago. And my my three-year-old son was playing in the room with another boy. And the 10-year-old who saw him went to his mom and said, Who's the other boy playing with Arius in his room? And she said, There's nobody else in there. And she went over and there was nobody else there. And the babysitter asked, Arius, who are you playing with? And he said, oh, that was my brother, Ezekiel. So, um, I know he's still around. And I know that my other daughter, Emma, is still around. And that they're part of our family. They're just beyond the veil. And um, my other daughters, Amberly and Eliza, have seen them as well. So, anyway, um, I'll continue on with the reading. Since we earned our place in mortality before we came here, we should learn to accept our temporal destiny and not complain if we are born in adverse conditions or in imperfect bodies. This life, however, gives us another opportunity to improve on those conditions. Um, Real quick as well, as I was reading that, I was just thinking about, like, we choose our lives. And I think that our lives 
or we're given different opportunities based on what we've done in previous mortal probations on other worlds. The other thing too, like this life seems like such a long life. I remember when I was a kid and I would look at the clock and it would be like 30 minutes until we got to go home and that 30 minutes lasted so long. And now days fly by uh, as I get older, time seems to speed up because of the stacking of time over a period of life and the experiences. Um, I think that we we perceive time different uh, when we get older, like somebody that is in their 80s, years fly by. But when you're young, years are so long. And when we look at the mortality that we're in, we think it's long, but when we have our mind opened and the veil is removed and we can remember the eons and eons of time that we have existed for, we'll look at each life as just the blink of an eye. While we're in it, it, it seems to last forever. But when we see things from an eternal perspective, a life flashes by in an instant. Heck, even when you consider that you have been around for millions of years, one rotation of an Earth cycle, which is about seven, or well, I think it's about 8,000 years, because you've got the 6,000 years of temporal existence, and then you have the millennium, which is a thousand years, so that makes seven thousand. And then the last um, thousand years is the eighth day. It's the Shamimiyah Sheret or Hasheret. I think I'm saying that wrong, but it's it, they call it the last great day, and that's beyond the millennium. I believe that that is a time period of the pre-mortal world. So when we were in the pre-mortality before this mortality in this earth life, I believe that those that we were set up, um, that things were planned and earth was created in that last uh, thousand years of, of that earth's history before we came to this world. That's speculation. God hasn't shown me that uh, that amount of detail. It's just something I think probably was the case. Anyway, so we're on page 64, which means we only have three pages left in this chapter. So it'll be a short program today as far as the reading goes, but let's get into page 64. When we come into this world as a newborn baby, we bring with us all of the traits and talents, likes and dislikes that we developed throughout mortality, that will be developed throughout mortality. And I think that we bring those on from other worlds. And how do we know what our likes and dislikes would be, especially with uh, in connection to food? So when my son Ezekiel was in utero uh, my wife craved candy and sodas and donuts and all those things she does not like that kind of food normally but for each of my children she craved different foods for each and every single one of them 
and for the children who lived, like those were traits that they continued with after they were born. Now Ezekiel died um, before he got to be older and and uh, pig out on junk food all the time, but I believe that Ezekiel just loved that kind of food. But in the spirit world, he wouldn't have known what if if the spirit world was the only thing that was before we became or we came into mortality he wouldn't have had the opportunity to understand what it's like to have a donut or a piece of cake I believe that he gained those likes when he was in a previous mortal body on a previous earth now as far as reincarnation goes I don't know if we come back multiple times in one earth cycle which would be you know, seven or 8,000 years. I don't know how many times, or even if we can. I think that there is a place for it. But I don't know. When I asked God about it, he, he told me uh, about the, uh, you know, putting off the resurrection and all of that. But he always, he said there's more to it, but he didn't reveal everything to me. I think there's a lot more to it than than what I've been shown or what the majority of of the Christian world believes. But, um, you know, I think there's a place for it. Maybe it's a special place. Maybe somebody like Joseph Smith comes back. Maybe John the Baptist was once Elijah and he was Enoch before. You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet. Well... Enoch and Elisha were great too so why is John so great like from our reading in scriptures we don't see John in the capacity of greatness other than he was to prepare the way but if you consider that he may have been Elisha and then before that Enoch then you realize how great John really was And the only reason I bring that up is because people have told me that I was once Enoch, and I was once Elijah, and I was once John the Baptist, and now I've come to prepare the way for the return of Jesus and his second coming. I don't know if that's true. God hasn't revealed that to me, but others have have said that they have had that revealed to them, and I'm like, oh, okay, well... That's interesting. And I think to myself, okay, so what if I was those people? Does it matter now? What matters now is that I'm who I am now. And maybe from an eternal perspective, it makes some difference but I think the character traits that I developed whether I was those people or whether um, I developed them in a pre-mortal world well a pre-mortal to this mortality you know um, whether that's one thing it doesn't matter some people have told me that I am the reincarnation of Joseph Smith and I don't know that either I don't and it doesn't matter because so who I was in the before I came to this world 
is who I truly am. And this person that I am today is only is only like a character in a play. It's part of who I am, but it's not the fullness of who I am. You know, whether if I was Joseph Smith in a previous incarnation, or I was John the Baptist, or Enoch, or Elijah, those were kind of like characters in a play in this earth, uh, in the history of this earth, but they were a part of who I truly am when the veil is removed. You know, and if Joseph Smith comes back, he'll come back as somebody who doesn't have the name Joseph Smith, and you might not recognize him, or maybe you will. Or maybe you'll recognize him, but you don't know why you recognize him. That's happened to me a lot. I've only had one, actually two people, recognize me for who I really am. Uh, But I've had literally thousands of people say, I know you from somewhere. And this is before I started doing my public videos and my public radio shows and my podcasts and all of that. But people have recognized me, but they don't know why. I had one person recognize me whose name was Joshua Sparks. And when he saw me, he knew exactly who I was. And God showed him uh, some some things about some of the experiences that I've had with the Father and the Son where the Father placed his hands on my head. He saw that. There was another man whose name I don't know, but he was a missionary in Nauvoo, Illinois, back in 2013, in the spring of 2013. And we were, my, my wife and my two kids at the time, well, technically three, because my daughter, Eliza, was in utero. She was, you know, in my wife's belly. <laughs> but uh, but we had the two little, Emmett and Lydia. And we were watching this plane. We're sitting on the front row. And it was like in Nauvoo. And there was this man who, after the play, came down and grabbed my, my hand and was shaking my hand with tears in his eyes. And he told me he knew who I, he remembered who I was in the pre-mortal world. And he was so happy to see me. And he talked to me and my wife. And he knew exactly who I was. And I don't remember what his name is, but I know he's from Snowflake, Arizona. And he was a widower. And he uh, decided to serve God in a mission. When we passed through Nauvoo, there was three altogether. That was one of them. But there was other, or there were two others that didn't know who I was, but very had a very strong impression that they knew me, but they didn't know why. And they knew my wife too. And you know, we lived in New Hampshire. We didn't live in Nauvoo, and they weren't from New Hampshire or Florida or any of the other places that I've lived. And this is before my public um, ministry time period of my life. 
So they re- they recognized me because of who I was in the pre-mortal and before this world, before I came into mortality. Anyway, continuing on. Just like a handful of various seeds that are sh- scattered upon the soil to grow, each matures to the very ger- to the very germ of its latent faculties and unfolds the image of its first creation. So man reflects the image which he developed in the pre-mortal world. When Jesus said, My sheep know my voice, he implied that his followers had known and heard him before they came to earth. See John chapter 10, verses 2 through 7. Most reincarnationalists have only a vague understanding of the beginning of the spirit body, whereas a student of the gospel has a much more complete picture of how spirits were born in the pre-existence. <clears throat> and um, before we get on to the next part, spirits had a beginning, but they come from intelligence, and God showed me that back in... 2010, I think, how, well, I'll just tell you what God showed me. And I think Joseph Smith was beginning to understand this, but he was not quite, um, he didn't quite understand the depth of the difference between intelligence and spirits, because he kind of used them interchangeably. But what God showed me when I was asking, where were you before the Big Bang? Because I believed in the Big Bang back then. That actually has been disproven with the new telescope that they have in space. The I can't remember, remember what it's called, but it replaced the Hubble telescope. They have been able to see so far out past where they, um, where they thought the Big Bang would push material out to. At a certain point, that they they've completely disproven the Big Bang with the new knowledge that they've gained from that telescope. But back then, back in the day, I asked God, "Where were you before the Big Bang? Like, if you've always existed, and there was a beginning to all of this, where were you? Were you just in the like the void of nothingness, and then you had a spark, an idea, and..." Boom, the whole universe is created in an instant, you know, whether that's through the Big Bang or whatever, however that happened. And I'd asked him this question for so many times, like literally hundreds, if not thousands of times. I had pondered as I drove in my truck and I love driving truck because I can sit and watch traffic and do my job, but I can also think and ponder and pray in silence as I'm driving along. And I had tried to wrap my mind around this, these concepts, and it just was, uh, it was mentally exhausting trying to make it make sense in my head. And I'd asked over and over, and finally God took me up in the spirit, and he showed me this vast cloud in space that was full of light. I, the cloud is the only thing that I could describe it. I mean, this thing was huge, light years across. And I came down into the cloud. 
And God said, look, and I looked, and there was there was an orb of light. And there were these orbs all over the place. So when you go further back, you see this massive cloud, but you come into the cloud, and there's these orbs of energy or light. And God said, this is the intelligence. And he said, look, and I looked, and there was a flash of light. And one orb became two orbs. And God explained to me that when the intelligence, which is what I was seeing, becomes self-aware, the energies of the masculine and the energies of the feminine separate, and you have the birth of a male and a female spirit. And that this is what is known as soulmates or twin flames, and there's a lot of different names for them. But it's because you're from the same energy of intelligence. And the intelligence is eternal. And God told me that the elements and all energy, it's all eternal. The laws of the universe are eternal. Like we discover different laws, like the second law of thermodynamics, or like the first law of whatever the laws are. We discover them, but they have always existed. They are as eternal as the intelligence and eternal as matter. They are eternal, as eternal as the elements. And God showed me that when the spirit is born, at that point it begins to gain knowledge and grow and But when these things happen, that we are um, nurtured and we are taught by others who have gone through things before. Like little babies, the parents have many experiences and they teach the babies and the babies grow and become toddlers and then small children and then larger children and then teenagers and then adults. Well, it's kind of the same way with the the intelligence. When they become spirit, they begin to grow and they are prepared to gain experiences just like a little child does. And I was also shown, I've shown so many things in this, this thing where God took me up in the spirit and just, he just showed me so much. But one of the things he showed me is that when the spirit, separate from the intelligence and they become male and female there is an aging process that happens where the spirit will age and will eventually cease to exist it's the second death it can happen by destruction and there's a way for that to happen for the the extreme wicked the sons of perdition but uh if they continue to go on and it takes a long time for this to happen But if they don't get to the point where they can be sealed, the male to the female and the female to the male, they will cease to exist. But sealing the male and the female together puts them back into a state that they were in before the, uh, when they were the intelligence, where they were in an eternal state. Sealing the male energy and the female energy back together, it actually brings them back to the point where they can remain separate but together 
in a state of eternity. This is how you gain eternal life. This is part of the steps. It's the first step in gaining eternal life. But we go through all of these experiences without having those things happen. So if you have the opportunity to be sealed, male to the female and female to the male, you have progressed in your progression to the point where you've gotten to the level where you can accept these things. For other people in the world, they haven't gotten to the point where they have had the opportunity to have the sealing power in the way that we have as Latter-day Saints. So, um, but continuing on. Bruce R. McConkie presented this beautiful description. Quote, our spirit bodies had their beginning in pre-existent. Pre-existence when we were born as the spirit children of God, our Father. Through that birth process, spirit element was organized into intelligent entities. And Bruce R. McConkie is very well studied. But I do not believe that he got any of this by revelation or vision. But we'll read it because Ogden decided that it was important to put this in here. The bodies so created have all the parts of mortal bodies. The brother of Jared saw Christ's spirit finger and then his whole spirit body. He said, I am Jesus Christ. That glorious personage said, this body which you now behold is the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, while I appear unto my people in the flesh. And that's Bruce R. McConkie quoting Ether chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Continuing on with Bruce R. McConkie, we had spirit bodies in pre-existence. These bodies are now housed temporarily in mortal tabernacles. During the period between death and the resurrection, we continue to live as spirits, and finally, Spirit and body will be inseparably connected in the resurrection to form immortal and spiritual bodies. Animals, fowls, fish, plants, and all forms of life were first created as distinct spirit entities in pre-existence before they were created naturally upon the face of the earth. That is, they lived as spirit entities before coming to this earth They were spirit animals, spirit birds, and so forth. Moses chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and we're on page 65 now. Each spirit creation had the same form as the outward appearance, as to outward appearance, as it now has in mortality. The spirit of man, the revelation specifies being in the likeness of his person as also the spirit of of the beast and every other creature which God has created. Doctrine and Covenants 77 verse 2 and that's Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine uh, page 750. So we have a limited understanding well Most people have a limited understanding, and they want to think that 
spirits are born through celestial sex or something like that. But that's not how it happens at all. That's a carnal, temporal way of thinking about things. But that's not how it happens. The other thing, too, a lot of people think we were born to a mother and a father in the spirit world because they don't understand what the law of adoption is and the progression of the gods. So I'll explain this again. I've explained it many times before, but part of the things that God has shown me. So Jesus, he didn't just become a god and never go through mortality. He ascended what we might even call Jacob's ladder. I've Maybe that's not the right term for it. But he was a prophet two worlds ago. He was a great prophet. And then he died and he was resurrected. And when the earth previous to this was created, he put off his resurrection and he was chosen to become God the witness of that world or who you would refer to as the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. He has many names, but he was the witness, God the witness of that world. So he became a God, a lowercase g God. Even though he's part of the first presidency of that earth, he was not the Redeemer. He was not the father and he was not the Elohim. He was God the witness. He went through all of his mortal probation on that world. And his redeemer on that world was Michael. The one who became Adam in our world. And Michael was the redeemer on that world and he paid for the fall and the sins and transgressions of the people on that earth, Michael did. And as part of his paying for our sins, because we were there too on that earth, we become bound to him as his children through the law of adoption. So that when this earth is created and that world is done away and Michael, who was our redeemer on an older earth, he is brought to this earth by Jehovah, his Elohim. So Jehovah was on the previous world when Michael was the redeemer. Jehovah was the father. He was the Adam of that world. So in this this world, Jehovah progresses from the position of a father or an Adam to the position of an Elohim. He becomes one of the Elohim. Jehovah was given instruction by the council of the Elohim. See, Jehovah is an Elohim. But there's a council of Elohim or mighty ones or gods under the direction of God, the eternal father. And Adam was, or not Adam, Jehovah was instructed to take Michael, 
who was our Redeemer on a former earth, who had become our Father spiritually by paying for our sins the same way that Jesus paid for our sins in this world. And Jesus becomes our Father through the law of adoption on this world. Michael had become our Father spiritually, and then he was placed in the Garden of Eden. He helped create this earth. He actually... Jehovah showed him how to do it, but it was Michael that did the work, and we assisted. But Michael organized this earth for an eternal round for his children. And then he went into the garden and became a mortal being with his wife Hava, or Ashura, or Eve, whatever you want to call her. And they became our parents, not only spiritually, but physically. When Jesus paid for our sins and transgressions and the fall that had to happen, we become his children spiritually. And when this earth is over and a new heaven and a new earth is created, Michael, who has become our Elohim at that point, will show Jesus how to create an earth, not just to organize the spirits, which he did for this world, but to actually be the creator of the earth itself. And Michael, who at that time will be the Elohim, will place Jesus in the garden and Jesus and his wife will be an Adam and an Eve. And the one who is called God the witness on this earth, when he progresses to that world, he will become a redeemer. And he will pay for the sins and transgressions and the fall of that world, and he will become a father to those people in that world, spiritually. And the world after that, the one who is God the witness, will become a father physically as an Adam with one of his wives who will become an Eve. Uh, this is the progression of the God. And in order to understand these deeper doctrines and not get them so confused, you actually have to understand these concepts of multiple mortal probations and the progression of the gods and all of these type of things. Anyway, Continuing on, the teaching of a pre-existence was predominant in the early days of Christianity, but according to the following statement, they were removed, quote, under circumstances that to this very day remain shrouded in mystery, the Byzantine emperor Justinian in 553 AD banned the the teachings of pre-existence of the soul from the Roman Catholic Church. During that era, numerous church writings were destroyed, and that comes from a book called Coming Back, pages 4 and 5. The pre-existent life was infinitely long and was a probationary progressive school. However, There was an atmosphere of free agency allowing some to become noble and great, while others chose to be rebellious and cruel and warlike. 
all had power to progress in many fields of learning or they could neglect them. The reincarnationalist says that we lived before we came here as mortals. However, they cannot conceive of our learning, acting, and gaining experience as a spirit in a spirit world. But the scriptures say, at death shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7. God in his wisdom did not create these spirits and then immediately send them down to earth without any preparation or understanding of what to expect in mortality. Orson Pratt explains, <clears throat> and we're on page 67, or 66, we have 67 left to go through, so two pages, but this is Orson Pratt. This period of pre-existence must have been sufficiently long to have educated and instructed the spirit in the laws and order of government pertaining to the spiritual world. To have rendered itself approved or disproved by those laws, to have been tried in all points according to its capacities and knowledge and the free agency which always accompanies and forms a part of the nature of intelligent beings. In fine, the period of pre-existence must have been sufficiently long to have constituted a probationary state or the first estate, wherein the spirits are on, the tri on trial and may fall and be are reserved in chains of darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And that comes from Orson Pratt, the seer, page 18. In the pre-mortal world, the spirit body was born just as the, the mortal body is on earth, which isn't just like the mortal body on earth. It, that's a carnal way to think about it. That's not how spirits are created. Spirits are born when they become self-aware, but that doesn't require a mother or a father to to get the intelligence to that point. It's a it's a process that happens. I'm not sure how it happens, but it happens without the assistance of others. Anyway, continuing on, spirits are actually born to an exalted heavenly father or mother, but that's not true either. They're adopted to their adoptive families, but they are not born to a mother or a father, at least not how I was shown. A mother and a father may take these spirits on at, a, at a, another time. They may have many mothers and fathers. And in fact, when we are sealed to the one who is sealed to the father. Okay, so G, uh, Joseph Smith received his calling and election and he was sealed to the father and the son. And when the church was first restored, there was something called the law of adoption and people were sealed to Joseph Smith. They were not married to him, they were sealed to him. Men and women. For some reason, 
people have lost this knowledge, but there was something called the law of adoption. And what that did is through Joseph Smith being the mortal on the earth, the Lord's anointed, people were sealed to him and he had been sealed to the Father and the Son. So there was a link from the children on the earth being sealed up to the mothers and fathers in heaven. Because our Father and our Redeemer are sealed to those people there in the heavens and to the heavens above them. So in DNC section 76, it talks about a white stone that will be given, which will help us to see orders higher than the celestial kingdom. Because there's more. There's more even beyond what Jehovah has received, or Adam, or Jesus, there will be continual eternal progression, and there's things that we do not understand at this time in our mortality. There are levels higher than the celestial kingdom. There are levels higher than exaltation. Continuing on, And when others become similarly exalted, they too will have spirit children. See, that's just a carnal way to think about it because Joseph Smith may have received this information in fullness and just not had the time to be able to put it into words to teach us. But we have a limited understanding apart from myself and Joseph Smith that there's a limited understanding of these things because people took the snippets of what Joseph Smith was trying to teach and they have tried to apply it to what they have experienced in mortality and now they're now they carry these beliefs that is not there that are not true that the work of a woman is to have continuous celestial sex and pop out billions and upon billions of spirit babies to create and populate an earth. That is not how it happens. That is a very carnal, temporal way of thinking about things. But it is not how it happens. But continuing on with the reading, that family unit will continue much the same as it can on earth. Peter wrote that he had fathers of our flesh, but that we should rather be in subjection to the father of our spirits. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. And according to Paul's writings, Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. These scriptural evidences show that we are that we are the literal spiritual offspring of parents in heaven, not an evolutionary growth of some materialistic substance, as many reincarnationalists believe. See, Ogden didn't understand these deeper things either, so he's trying to make it make sense in his head. But you know what? Part of the restoration... So Joseph Smith came to lay the foundation for Zion to be redeemed, And the Davidic servant comes to complete what Joseph Smith laid. But all these things will be revealed to the remnant in time. 
all of them will be revealed to the remnant in time. Thus, if we are the offsprings of heavenly parents, they would naturally want to look after us in the same kindly and careful manner as we would look as we would our children here on earth. Would these concerned and protective parents send us to a strange place to go through the mystical series of circuitry over and over again? Wouldn't it seem reasonable that instead they would have us gain our experience and our and learning our lessons during one mortal lifetime without repeating it numerous times? And now we're on the last page, page 67. One of the best examples of the progression of man from the spirit world into mortality back to the spirit world and on to a resurrected and exaltation and res- resurrection and exaltation was seen by Mosiah Hancock in his vision of the premortal state where he saw the activities and progress of the spirits of men, i.e. Abraham and other great men, and even himself. So Mosiah Hancock was, I think he was 11 years old when, um, when Joseph Smith was murdered with Hiram. And his father was Levi Hancock. Moses later went on to become one of the 70s, and he was given some really great um, visions of the of the pre-existence. And um, what he saw, what I think is really cool about this, is God showed me a bunch of stuff, and I had no idea that Levi Hancock or Mosiah Mosiah Hancock actually had had the same kind of of vision, although his vision uh, was not as detailed or or whatever um, as mine was. But God showed me this vision, and then later on, He led me to Levi Hancock's vision, which was like, oh, this is very familiar. This is what part of what I saw. In what God showed me. And like, I think it's cool because God will reveal things to me. And then later on, he will take me to where other people have had similar type of experiences. And I'll be like, wow, that's amazing. Anyway, here's the quote. At last, the time came for me to go to the earth. The Savior came to me and said, Mosiah, It is time for you to prepare to go. You have been faithful so long here. It is time for you to go that you may return and be as we are. I knew my departure was near at hand and asked if on my return I could have the same position I then held. The Savior said yes and greater. But you have to go down to the earth and take a lowly position and be misunderstood by man, even your brethren, and endure many hardships and set many examples of humility and patience. 
that you may return and enter the glory, even such as I have. And quote Mosiah Hancock Journal, Addendum, page three, pages three and four. The experiences obtained in the premortal world are so vast and important that they can produce both extremes, great and noble, and wicked and evil. And that's the end of the chapter. Uh, when we continue on with our reading, we'll be in chapter eight, and we're going to talk about predestination and foreordination, which starts on page 68. It's chapter eight of reincarnation. When you understand that we have gone through many mortal probations on worlds before this world, then things begin to open up and be more clear as to why we gained the experiences. Like people like Ogden Kraut and Brigham Young didn't even understand this, and Bruce R. McConkie, and the list goes on and on. They don't understand that we lived in worlds before this world. We gain the experience of mortality by being in mortalities before this world ever existed. We can call it the pre-existence, but part of the pre-existence was to be in a mortal body. And that, like for instance, when we gain a level of resurrection on this earth, if it is not exaltation, then we are damned in a state of resurrection. Even the first two degrees of the celestial kingdom were damned in a state of resurrection until we can get it, until we can put off the resurrection and go and gain more experience in another mortal probation on another world. And that without this experience, that we will not be taught to become like the Father and the Son. That we need the experiences of many mortalities to become like they are. We're not going to gain that experience in this life. And one of the fallacies that I see in the modern apostate churches that come from the restoration they think that Jesus gained all of the experience that he needed to become a god in the spirit world never having gone through immortality before I'm here to tell you that that concept is simply not true that Jesus was God the witness before this world was created. That he was a prophet before he became God the witness. The reason why he is a God on this world is because he chose the right path to become God the witness and he progressed To become the higher level of God that he is today. And this is how we all go through 
the progression of the gods. This is how we all become exalted. And this path is more narrow than you first thought. But it is a path that we can follow and become like they are. And I say these things in the name of Messiah. Amen. So, all right, now I'm going to talk a little bit about my work schedule and how things are are going. <laughs> so last Monday, I started orientation, and we worked from uh, 10 a.m. to about 4 p.m., Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We were supposed to go for an extra day, but the supervisor who was doing the orientation, his dad got really sick down in Texas and he had to take off. So then the other guy who did not know where he or where the other guy was at in the teaching of everything, he had to take over and, well, I think we skipped a bunch of stuff. So anyway, on Thursday, I got into a truck with another individual. We started at 3 in the morning, which means I had to get up at 1, get everything ready, which takes me an hour because I'm slow and I had to take a shower and I had to get my food and I had to do all the stuff. Anyway, um, but the night I didn't know that I was going to be going on a truck that day and so I didn't have all of my oil filled stuff so I'm I haul crude that's my job right now I I was hauling coal for the last six years I just started hauling crude out of the oil field I have experience in the oil field before I worked for two and a half years out in South O'Reilly and I was oil field emergency management And I had all of these tools and all of this gear to go into cold weather in the oil fields because I had done that job before. It's a very difficult job. But this crude hauling, this is even more difficult than what I was doing before. Even though I was on the cleanup crews and I took care of overpressured wells and all kinds of crazy things that happened out in uh, different fields and like I traveled so I they would have me mostly in South O'Reilly which is a huge huge oil field down by the Green River and the White River down by a place called Bonanza and Bitter Creek and I don't know O'Reilly um I would go out to emergencies out in Colorado, out in Rifle, Colorado, and around that area. I've gone to emergencies in other places in Utah where there's oil fields. Um, but it was different. I had I had a 90-barrel tank in a single truck with the tank on the back. And I had all kinds of hoses and equipment and all kinds of lights. Like, it was fun. I enjoyed that job until Obama decided to pull all of our leases and really screw up the the industry. And like 75% of the field got laid off. 
and all of almost all of the drilling rigs got mothballed and put in storage. So that's the reason I got out of it before, and um, now I'm back in it. And so I didn't have all of my stuff because there was supposed to be another day of orientation. So the night before, I slept for five hours and I got up at one. I got my stuff ready and I got into my car at two and I drove and got to um, got to the truck and then we left we left at 3 a.m. We did our pre-trip before that and we left at 3 a.m. We worked 16 hours. And then got off the truck from the time we hit end on our logbooks. We had to be back 10 hours later. And I was actually back nine and a half hours later. And it's like 40 minutes, 45 minutes from where uh, where I work to where I live. So then you add an hour and a half of commute time to that 10 hours off. And then you add an hour for taking, well, I'd add maybe 30 minutes once I get home for bringing all my stuff in, um, making sure I have all my clothes ready for the next day, taking a shower and laying down and going to bed. And then I get up six, six and a half hours later, whatever it is, maybe seven if I'm lucky, if I'm very lucky. And I get up and I take a shower to wake up and I put a whole bunch of gel in my hair because I have long hair. I've not cut my hair since 2012 because the father told me not to. I do not like long hair. Before he told me not to cut it anymore, I actually bicked it and I was bald a lot. I liked being bald because hair gets in your face. Anyway, so I have to do my hair. I have to put on my first layer of clothes. And then I have to put on my second layer of clothes. And then I have to put on my fire-resistant clothing that is required in the oil field. So I have three layers of clothes on at this point. And there's a good reason for that, because that particular morning... We left off at 5 a.m. And we drove about 20 miles and we got stuck. If you're following me on Facebook, you can see the videos that I took. It was really pretty. But the pass that we go over is nine. It's a little over 9,100 square feet. It's called Indian Pass. And... It snows and it is steep. So we stop and we put two three rollers on, which means two three rollers um, are chains that go on for snow tires or for driving on the snow, and they cover a complete axle set of drives. And that's four tires. And then we put on another two chains, because that's all we had, on our second set of drives. And 
there was two bald tires on the drives, which I don't know that it would have helped a lot, but maybe it would have. But anyway, we're we're going up, and everybody else has got chains on too, and they're getting stuck, and we're getting stuck, right? And we actually were able to pass everyone else that was stuck, and we made it to maybe two miles from the top, or maybe it's a mile and a half, I don't know. And we got stuck. We're empty. There's no weight on our drives. We have chains on, but we were going around a turn and we were barely making any progression. And we were sliding towards the very steep drop off on this very tight turn. And we had to stop. We were about three feet off the road and another five feet we would have gone down the side of a very very deep canyon very very steep not cliff but part of the mountain right so anyway so we sat there for three hours before a tow truck came up and pulled us up to the top and then went down in uh all of those people that we passed that had been sitting there the next one was this woman who works for our company and she had been sitting there for five hours and we'd only been sitting there for three hours so i'm pretty sure she was not exactly happy with us but in in all fairness she had a sleeper on her truck and we did not have a sleeper on our truck so she was just taking a nap in the back waiting for the tow truck to come up and pull us up the hill. So there was like three sets of doubles and two singles. Um, and the two singles were, uh, we were the first ones, even though the, we weren't, we were sitting there for less time than the other one. But anyway, so anyway, we got pulled up the hill and we went down and we got loaded, which takes way too long when you're training. So, when, all, when the conditions are all good, you can get two loads in 12 and a half hours. When the conditions are not great or when there's any kind of delays, like at the place where we, where we unload, like we sat there for like three hours one time. And you know what? This company pays $30 an hour just to sit. If you have to sit, they'll pay you for your time, which... I am like, that's great. Like they're trying to, this job is so difficult that it's really hard to keep drivers. In fact, so I worked four days um, after orientation. So I worked, actually I worked seven seven straight days. Um, had 91 hours, not including commute time. Um, but I had the owner of the company and it's a large company. It's, it's split up into two different companies. There's the oil hauling division and then there's this other stuff that, that he does. It's a pretty big company and it's been around for a long time. Anyway, I had the main safety guy and the owner call me and ask me for my thoughts on how to improve things and uh, just get my opinions on everything and I actually talked to both of them for about 45 minutes last night 
And I don't know why, I don't know if they call everybody, but they called me and I, I told them, you know, because the night before I had, so, all right, I, I got to back up a little bit. So I was with the trainer for two days. And when his hours ran out, I started my hours and then I would work for like another six hours. So the one day we worked like 20 or 22 hours straight. And then the next day we worked like 18 hours straight. Um, And then the last day I followed him up. He drove his truck and I drove a truck that they get. And I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm a little irritated by this because if I knew that I was going to be driving a truck, I would have brought the things that make my job easier driving a truck. But I didn't know. So anyway, I jump in this truck and I go and get loaded. And we have delays at the load site. We go and get unloaded. We have delays at the unload. Not to mention the fact that he is loading next to my truck and he has to do his job and he has to train me at the same time. Like, it's difficult, right? And I told him the first run took eight hours from the time that we got loaded till the time we got unloaded. And we're not supposed to do 16-hour days. We're supposed to, we can do 16 hours once uh, in a work week. And the only way we can get more of those 16 hour days is to take a 34 hour hour reset. Or if we do eight days straight, we can do another one after eight days after the last one that we did. So we got the 16 hour day and I had an hour left when we're fueling by Mighton, which is in between Roosevelt and Deshane, if you know where those places are in Utah. And I had an hour an hour to get back to to helper, which is where we park the trucks, and it, it takes a little bit longer than, than an hour. And I only had I actually had like fifty three minutes left on my logbook and it took an hour and 20 minutes to get back or something and it was snowing so it took longer so anyway um so i had to file for or claim my 16 hour exemption for severe weather and yesterday i get back to the yard and this crude oil, they have to heat it up between 140 and 180 degrees or it turns to wax. It's crude oil, but it's classified as crude oil. But this stuff that I'm hauling, it goes into lipstick. It goes into petroleum jelly. It goes into Vaseline. It's what these things are made, like so many things. They, they even have this stuff in the production of jeans. Like what I'm hauling isn't made into gas or oil for your car, but it is crude oil. It's made, there's so many things, there's so many products that this particular stuff, it, it there's so many plastics. There's, there's so many things anyway, but When it gets below 140, it starts turning to sludge and it will turn to a very, I wouldn't say hard, 
per se, because you can scrape it like butter, like hard butter, like not so hard as uh, as refrigerated butter, but it it's a pain in the butt, and you can't unload it when it's like that, because it's got hoses it goes through. So they heat it up to to between 140 to 180 degrees. Well, it's cold outside. And you cannot leave a truck loaded. So what happened was I claimed my 16-hour exemption. I got back to the yard. I was going to head home, and my supervisor says, would you like to come with me so that you can practice training? Now, I can be on duty for up to 70 hours at a time. I just can't drive after, after 11 hours of drive time if that happens I can't drive after that or if I've been driving on and off and loading on and off and I've been on duty for 14 hours I can't drive after that unless I claim the exemption but after the exemption ends or after the 14 hour ends I can't drive after that but I can be on duty so I get so I'm still in the truck and uh, he comes and he drives it and he tells me a lot more than my trainer because he's been doing this for a long time. And he's quizzing me, you know, if it's or what temperature um, can you not haul this product? Anything above a specific temperature? And I said 180. He said, what about below a specific temperature? I said, I said uh, 140. And then he says, what temperature, or what bottom can you not haul? So <coughs> at the bottom of these 30 foot high tanks, oh, and that's the other thing, 30 feet tall tanks, one ladder, 30, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much my legs burn after 10 feet of walking on the stairs, let alone 30 feet. So I walking up these stairs, right? Now, you put a tape gauge down into the tank and it's got inches and feet on it. And um, it'll tell you how, how full the tank is, right? And you pull like seven and a half feet off per load and the loads are up to 250 barrels depending on the weight or the gravity of the oil and you have to do all these tests right you have to put this thing called a thief which opens up at the bottom you put it down into the water all the way to the bottom of the tank and there's this little metal rod at the very bottom of the thief and you bang it on the bottom of the tank a couple times and it, it causes a trap door to close, which captures a sampling of your oil and your water and your debris at the bottom of the tank. And then you pull it up and if your unload spot is 10 inches high, you cannot have water that is lower than two inches below the the, the loadout. So, a ten inch uh, a ten inch high 
loadout pipe can I have water being sucked into it? It has to be at least eight inches below that. Or not eight. It has to be at least two inches minimum below that. Hopefully it's it's less than that. But you have to get those you have to get those samples and you have to pull this thing up and you have to look at your water and your your oil. You also have to get a top uh, a sample of the top. Oh, and then you have to put samples of the oil in that's like 160, 70, 80 degrees. You have to put a sample of that in these cups that are about three inches tall and maybe an inch wide. You have to get your samples from two different spots. I think I can't remember if it's the top and the middle. I think it's the top and the middle. Maybe it's the top and the bottom. I don't remember. Anyway, so you get your samples. You have to get temperatures and you have to get gravity, which uh, tells you how much the oil weighs because if you get gravity of a certain gravity, so 50 is, um, uh, is one gravity, which is lighter crude. If it's down to like 43, that means the crude is more thick and it's more heavy and you can't haul as much because if you if you load too much you're going to get pulled into the the port of entry and you're going to get a ticket which two people did this week one was 4800 pounds over and the other one was 2000 pounds over and we actually got pulled in but we didn't get a ticket because we were a thousand pounds over on our on our trailer and about a thousand pounds light on our drives so they just said well, however you got to adjust it you guys adjust it you know and we they give us a leeway of a thousand pounds so we didn't get a ticket but those other two ladies did and these ladies that work with us i think there's three of them they're like five four five two maybe maybe five five skinny skinny girls and yeah this is a difficult job but they can do it some tough women out there um and then there's men out there that that do this and they quit because it's difficult although one of the ladies on the day when it snowed and she was stuck for five hours she only did one load that day and when she was at the loadout she was in tears and there was three of us men listening to all of the problems that she had that day. And you know what? She came back the next day and the next day and she was, she had been in tears. And she even, the next day she had a small spill and she's just getting flustered because it's, it is such a difficult job. She's only been doing this for like three weeks and it takes time. It takes time. But it's hard to keep drivers. But it pays. Um, it it pays um, around right around five to six hundred dollars a day for two loads, plus any time that you have to wait, it's thirty dollars an hour. So if I made thirty dollars an hour for forty hours, and then I got time and a half for forty-five dollars an hour. I would be making less money just on the loads 
than I do now getting getting the straight play pay plus the $30 an hour for any wait time. So like I said, this is a really very high paying job. It is very, very difficult. When I was putting chains on, um, now luckily I worked in the oil fields before. So I, I actually count myself blessed because I went through hell before. I started in January of 2008 in the oil fields. I did not have any any equipment. I did not know what I was getting myself into. I had nowhere to live. Because when it's booming out in the oil field, some guy that's got an extra room is charging some oil field workers six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars uh, there was a studio apartment that was going for like $1,200 that I found out about. And then, uh, oh, and the other thing they do, they'll charge a driver. So these drivers come out from different places because there's not enough people in the oil field during a boom to keep everything going. And when, when like, Obama decides he's not going to let us drill and, and the job falls apart... There's not enough work in the oil field to keep all those people busy. So so what happens is you've got these people that live out there that that do their thing, that love, love, love when the oil field is booming. And so they'll take a room in their house and they will rent it to two people. And it works like this. If you have a company that has two drivers in a truck and they weren't running 12-hour shifts. The one driver will sleep in the room for 12 hours. And then the other driver, when he gets back, he will sleep in that room for 12 hours. And then uh, the other guy will go to work. And so they've got two people sleeping in the same bed. Um, usually people will like put sleeping bags, they'll bring sleeping bags, they'll sleep on sleeping bags on a mattress that's provided for them or whatever. <clears throat> and they'll have like a trunk of their stuff that they lock up. I I never did this, I just, I've seen it. I had friends. You know, we all worked on the oil field. I, I got friends out there. So anyway, um, and two people will share a room for $600 a piece per month. So some some person that has extra rooms in the oil field, they can rent those rooms for 12, one room for $1,200 a month. It's ridiculous. I lived in my car. So when I first went out there in January of 2008, I had this beautiful little hatchback. It was a Hyundai Elantra. I bought it brand new. It had like 15 miles on it. I loved, 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 loved that car. And I would still own that car today if it wasn't for the fact that when we came out here to Utah to visit, we stayed and we didn't have enough money to go back. And my car was parked at the Hartford, Connecticut FedEx ground terminal. And it was parked there for a couple of years, but I was so broke when we, when we first got married. I couldn't, I couldn't go back and get it. And I was having transmission problems. 
and um, I got the transmission rebuilt by Amco, but when we got it back, it was still having problems. And it was under warranty, but we came out to Utah because my semi truck had a uh, it had a break. It had to be overhauled, and my boss, who owned that truck for FedEx Ground, said that it would be about two weeks. So I had we had some money from taxes, and we said, okay, well, we're going to drive our jalopy van. I don't even know how I made it. I don't like we're like putting all of our trust in God because God actually told us we need to go out there. And that's when I went out and uh, I was telling you about the people in Nauvoo that recognized me and the one man who knew exactly who I was. That was on that trip. So we were going out and we were supposed to like go out and then come back. My wife and my new kids, um, I don't like calling them stepkids because they're my kids. I don't care. I might not be their biological dad, but I'm their dad. So anyway, um, we went out and my wife was pregnant with Eliza. She was seven months pregnant and she was fine. And the doctor said, you guys can travel, you know, just whatever. She, the, the doctors gave us instructions. We got out to Utah and she started having problems. We went up to Moses Lake, Washington to get some of my stuff out of a storage that it had been in storage for a while. And she started having more problems. And we had to make it, we, we went back down to Roosevelt to my friend's house that I worked in the oil fields with before. And the doctors told her that she could travel. She could only go by car. She could travel for a half an hour at a time. And then she had to take a break for an hour. Roosevelt, Utah to upstate New Hampshire. With my wife having problems. And then, like, if we have more emergency problems, like we're out in the middle of nowhere, and my wife has the baby. Like, I don't even want to think about what could have happened. So we stayed with my friend. I transferred to North Salt Lake to FedEx Ground. I continued to work from there. And uh, I was an over-the-road um FedEx ground, we ran teams, team driving. Anyway, but um, that's why we're in Utah. But I think it was all part of God's plan. So I never went back and cut my car, but I was living in that car. It was a, it was a hatchback. When I first worked in the oil fields, and I, I cut a, uh, a futon mattress, to f uh, two futon mattresses, I took the stuffing out and I cut it to, to the shape of the back of my, my car, and I put the covers back on them, and I had a bed in the back of my car, I had a trailer hitch and a trailer put on the back of my car, I had big containers that I had locks on that were locked to the trailer 
that had all of my gear, all of my supplies, all of my food for a week, and I had a generator with a, a doghouse over the generator, and once a day I would go and fill it up, took a gallon of gas, and it ran for an hour. I took the extension cord of this generator that was in a big doghouse to keep it out of the weather but still let it breathe and the exhaust go out and everything. And I had an extension cord that went along the, the trailer, along the tongue, and then up through the back of the car, through the hatch, and then um, underneath to the side and had a shelf. Uh, I had a, my seat taken out of the front of the car and had a shelf there with some supplies and a space heater. And so that's where I lived for a while, quite a while, until I got a motorhome. And then I lived in the motorhome out by where you get fresh water by the White River uh, for a year. And then, anyway, I, but I, I've done this job before, and I knew it was difficult before. So difficult. So I had the gear to do this job again, but I wasn't sure if I could do this job again. But you know what? I got that shot in my back and my discs in my back that are messed up. I don't, they're not causing me pain. My arthritis and my spine, spine is not causing me as much pain and I'm doing this job. And we worked all those long hours. And yeah, I am exhausted. I was exhausted. I got home yesterday around 10 a.m. I barely made it into the house. I was so tired. I was. I didn't even make it up to take a shower. I hit the couch. I fell asleep. My son comes home around 4. And, uh, you know, I finally went upstairs and took a shower. And then I went back to sleep with my wife. And she went to bed around 9. And then I got up at like 4 o'clock this morning. And I'm still exhausted. But um, I have today to rest. Yesterday, whatever. I'm going to take tomorrow off too. And then I'm going to go back to work on Thursday. And uh, apparently the owner told me that I can drive my own truck and they're going to have somebody meet me over there to help me with the loading process. And they'll have somebody on the other side that'll help me and the other guys that are training uh, with the unloading process. But um, I think it's funny because my trainer, he said, oh, you, you got this. You don't need as much training as the other guys. And I was like, yeah, but there's still a lot that I'm not really sure on. I need practice before I go along. Well, the owner of the company said that they're going to set it up this other way. Because, like, all of us trainee, uh, trainees, we all have a lot of experience driving. In fact, one of the guys who um, did his orientation last week and then he went back to St. George where he lives, he uh, came back and he started on Monday. Well, he owns a semi-truck. He's an owner-operator. He's got a pretty nice Volvo. It's a 2016 Volvo, uh, you know, and a, and a tra uh, some trailers. And um, he is 
driving a company truck right now because the freight rates are so low that the American truck driver cannot haul anything without going into the red each month. And I think that this is all done by greed and design because I believe that they are trying to destroy this country. In fact, I'm amazed that crude is being hauled. But we have so much oil in this country that we don't need it from anywhere else. But the first thing the Obama did, and not just this country, Canada too, the first thing Obama did, he shut three pipelines down. Three pipelines down. And he pulled a ton of leases and federal wells, so they're not producing. So you're watching gas prices go up because there's not enough supply for the demand. And he has the audacity to go to our enemies, Venezuela and um, Russia and other places, to get oil when we have it in this country. From 2016 to 2020, we heard all about Russiagate, how Donald Trump was doing all the Russian things, and oh, that was so horrible, and blah, 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 and whatever. But Obama stopped oil production and natural gas production in this country, and they were shipping the majority of the natural gas and oil from Saudi Arabia and from Russia. They talk about global warming, but let me tell you why it's better to get our own oil from our own country. We're not paying somebody else for it. That's that's just one. Number two, if natural gas has to come from Russia, which is where we were getting it during the Obama administration, it has to be put on these massive tankers. And how do you think that is shipped to this country? They have to run these big motors in these these big tankers to bring it over to get to supply it to us. So it actually costs more carbon, more of a carbon footprint than just getting it here ourselves. Now, why do you think Obama did that? Well, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it had something to do with kickbacks. When when Biden was vice president, he basically uh, said, you know, give me this money or these things are going to happen. He, like, got his son a job um, in the oil and gas industry, didn't know anything about. Like, it's just, it's so corrupt. This country and the politicians in this country are so incredibly corrupt. But I lost my job because Obama decided that uh, that we needed to get natural gas and oil from other places when we have so much in this country. You cannot even fathom how much we have just in the United States of America, let alone Canada. So much. We, we don't need... In fact, we should be selling it to the rest of the world 
and and drilling it for ourselves. Also, we have the EPA and all of these like things that happen in this country. So we're safe. We clean up our messes, which they don't do in other countries. You know, when, when Trump was in office, he opened up all of the, uh, the natural gas and oil fields. He opened up a lot of coal mines, which we need. As soon as Obama, Obama 2.0, I mean Biden, got in, he started shutting everything down again. They are the enemies of this country and they want it destroyed and I firmly believe that the election that they claimed was stolen in 2016 was never stolen but it was stolen in 2020 and then I believe this year 2022 a lot of seats were stolen as well because these people are disgusting in how corrupt they are. And they are trying to destroy this country, which is part of the reason why God told me to leave. He told me to tell you and myself, leave all of the populated areas. Warn them to leave the populated areas. The gathering of the remnant is in Emory County, Utah. He told me to come here in 2016. And so I moved here. And I lived in a place for three years that we rented because we didn't know what to do. We just knew God told us and we tried to be obedient and we were. And... In 2019, we moved into this place that we live now on a 10-acre farm. And God has provided, because it's a miracle that we have this this home. It's a miracle. So, um, but God wants us out of the cities. God told me that when everything falls apart, which it will, and I don't know, years? I hope it's years. I don't know what the timeline's, but he said when it happens, it will eventually become too dangerous to remain in Emory County. When that happens, here's where I want you to take the people. And he showed me. And it's out in the wilderness it's out in desolation. It's a, it's a little place that he's prepared. But it's there. And when the remnant is there, they, are, they, are, they will be protected. We will be protected as the nation burns around us, as Babylon the Great burns around us. And when the cleansing happens and Zion is redeemed in that place meaning the fullness of the priesthood has been restored to the inhabitants of Zion that are on the earth, will come forth from the mountains and we will assist the patriots who remain in destroying the wicked from off the land. But this is years and years and years out. 
I'm not exactly sure what the timelines are, but this is years and years and years out. So anyway, um, that's pretty much all I have to say about all of this. I will try to get a couple of more podcasts recorded, and I'm going to post this one today. And then, um, like I said, I have today and tomorrow off, and I'm going to go back to work on Thursday, I think. And uh, I'll work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then I'll be off Monday, which will be a day of complete exhaustion for me. And then um, I think I'm going to go back. I'm going to go on a four-on, four-off schedule. So I'll work for four days, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I'll be off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then I'll go back on for four days again. So it's just the way it has to be right now. And I guess it doesn't have to be this. I could be hauling coal. But let me tell you the difference between hauling coal and hauling this crude oil. So the reason why that guy down in St. George can't use his own truck to do this job is it's not long enough. And he doesn't have a drop axle. We're hauling 106,000 pounds gross weight. In order to haul 106,000 pounds gross weight, you have to have steers, a drop axle, and two sets of drives on your tractor. And then we have, uh, let's see, three sets of duels and a drop axle on our trailer. Well, with the longer wheelbase of these crude trucks, I'm not being vibrated to death near as bad driving these trucks as I was with the short wheelbase of the coal trucks. It makes so much difference. Before, it, I would be worn out after 10 hours. Sometimes I would do 12. Sometimes I would do 14 in a coal truck. But I was so worn out that if I did a 14-hour day, it was usually the last day of the week, uh, the last day of my work week, if I had time on my 70 to do it, and I needed to take the next day off just to rest from doing a one 14-hour day. But now that I'm doing crude, I'm doing four 14-hour days with a possible exception of uh, of one 16-hour days per week. Hopefully not, but you know how it goes. And, yeah, I have one day when I am exhausted, and I'm still tired today, but I'm, yesterday was my recovery day. And, um, <clears throat> and I needed that after one shift, 14-hour shift in a cold truck, and I don't – I. I can do four, uh, four 14s in the crude oil truck, and I'm not suffering as much. Even though the hours are longer, I'm not suffering as much. So, anyway, that's where I'm at, and that's why I haven't, excuse me, I haven't been doing these podcasts as much, and I'm not on the schedule I would love to be on, but at the same time, I uh, I need to support my family for one. Uh, I wasn't making enough money in the coal truck, and I was being vibrated to death, and I was causing a lot of pain. 
and um, yeah, I have 10 acres. I have five acres of hay. I don't have a tractor. I don't have, I have a baler, but it needs parts. I have a swather, but it needs parts. You know, um, we were supposed to get 26 shares of water with this property. We only got five, and they will not give up those other 21 shares, so I need water. I can't do that without making some good money, and I'm trying to prepare a place where people can come to, where we can have meetings and stuff, and that costs money. And I don't receive... I don't receive money from anyone except for one person was paying me. He was like sending me like 30 bucks a month or something like that because that's what his tithing was, I guess. And and he said, well, I want you to have this $30 a month because you're the one that teaches me, you know, I you're my teacher. He called me the teacher all the time, which is funny. Um, but that's what I do. I teach, right? So he would he would send me thirty dollars. That was one person. Now I have people who are listening right now. Uh, when the podcast comes out, and they're going to move here to Emory County. Now my house is kind of nice. It's it's a little bit big, but we have seven people to live here. I don't have a huge living room. You know, so eventually I would like to build a church on my property. There's plenty of room for it, but I have to make money for that to happen. So I'm just trying to, uh, I'm trying to fix things and trying to prepare, and I'm doing it out of my own pocket. So I don't ask any money for any of these programs. I don't ask for any money for anything. I'm trying to do what I can because God is, has told me to do certain things and I'm trying to do them. So anyway, this, uh, this short chapter, chapter seven turned out to be pretty long podcast. So, all right, well, um, my three-year-old son is still asleep. So I'm going to start working on another one. I don't know how long it's going to be before he comes, uh, and wakes me up. But I probably won't have time to do two today. So anyway, all right. Well, I think we're going to leave it at that. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. God bless. And goodbye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.